My name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. I would also like to take a minute to let you know about our podcast, which is called The Throwaways. It is about the Lawton serial killer, which is a series of unsolved killings considered to be by the same killer, which took place roughly between 1999 and 2003 in Lawton, Oklahoma. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Okay, we're doing just a slight update. I wanted to read to you just a little from Gore versus State. We are going to share this on our Facebook page, so you can find it there. Some things that we did not mention. During the investigation of the crime scene, according to the court records, there was also a shampoo bottle with the lid missing and apparently the lid was not found also the lid to the ketchup bottle was found in Deborah's anal canal also during the autopsy report they found but there were bruises and scrapes on her face her forehead above her right eye along her right cheek along the left side of her mouth under her chin on the back of her neck and there were also bruises and bite marks found inside her mouth and on her tongue a narrow ligature mark found around her neck fresh bruises on her chest arms hips knees on the inside and outside of her thighs around her vaginal area sperm was also found not only in the vagina and rectum but also around the vagina and rectum and it was I don't know if we said this or not but they had actually ruled her death uh, that actually she survived all of that and her death was actually by asphyxiation from the ligature strangulation So the rest of what happened is even lengthier and quite obvious. Both of the guys lawyered up, nobody local wanting them. Ron looked like a total wacko because he was off his meds. Nobody would do anything about it. That's really sad. I just feel like they probably paid off this dingbat jury. They were like, sure, they're guilty. The second witness, I shit you not, was Glenn Gore, who changed his story for the third or fourth time now. We lose track. 
The second witness in the trial? In the trial. Okay, so it should also be noted that Glenn Gore was not present at Ron Williamson or Dennis Fritz's trial as he was incarcerated. So Glenn Gore was actually at the preliminary hearing, like actually brought in for the preliminary hearing, but he was not brought in for either of the trials. It was just his affidavit used from the preliminary hearing and read it in court. So all of the testimony that he gave in court is technically still testimony. However, he wasn't actually there to state it or be questioned or cross-examined or anything like that. So it was just basically his written statement and that was it. So just a little FYI. We're go- I mean, everything is so yada yada at this point. You know, it's like, here's yeah. here's this date and that date and so-and-so and this and that and whatever. Like, you're going to get lost in it. Just, just follow that this was a lot of back and forth. Yeah. So, newest version of the story, he said that Debbie asked him to save her because Ron was there at the coach light and was pestering her. Uh-huh. Gore said he told the police about this on December 8th, but their report doesn't mention Ron, and it wasn't given to the defense. Of course it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Is another procedure not followed? Well, yeah, and... and- that's one of those things that uh, can give you a nice little retrial later. Huh. <laughs> How about that? How about that? Bill Peterson had the gall to put a man on the stand who had come in in cuffs and chains, serving a 40-year sentence for breaking into his ex-wife's house. So this is Glenn Gore. Broke into his ex-wife's house, held her and his own daughter hostage for five hours at gunpoint, and shot at the police. Oh, my God. He shot Rick Carson in the face, which is pretty hilarious to me, considering I believe in karma. But the injuries weren't serious. Wait, was this this before he testified? Yeah, he was in he was in prison. Oh my god, he was in prison for this. That sounds familiar to our very first case we talked about, the Caitlin Wooten case, and we see how that plays out. He was serving forty years for this in 1986, while they were getting divorced. Because they were already divorced when he did this, right? Okay. So in 1986, when they were getting divorced, he had broken into her house and stabbed her. Now, this is the problem. He had stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife. He got charged with assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, which begs the question, how is that not attempted murder? Yeah, it is. He fucking broke in. For sure it is. Uh, How does that translate to assault and battery? No. Ring that bell? I don't get it. I'm calling nope. So in 1981, he had been charged for forcibly entering the home of another woman, but we're going to bring him in as a witness, a credible and viable witness, and the jury isn't going to see right through this bullshit smoke show. Well, they didn't. Where do you get these people from? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, I think the, it, was, it was the defense's responsibility to bring up uh, Glenn Gore's record, and they should have done that as well. That's why they got these retrials or that's why retrials were happening because they were like let's keep this secret from the defense uh, when Gore signed and he signed an affidavit in prison admitting he sold drugs in Ada in the nearly 19 in the early 1980s and received favorable treatment from the police because he was involved in drug transactions with them yeah. the good boy treatment stopped when he stopped selling drugs to them huh who to thunk said in 2001 that he didn't know if Ron was at the coach light the night of the murder. When he was shown a lineup back then, it was directly suggested that he point out Ron Williamson. 
The crime scene specialist, Jerry Peters, was on the stand and said that of the 25 fingerprints found at Debbie's place, none belonged to Fritz or Williamson. Enter Terry Holland. Again with Terry Holland, who from our last case you met. Little Miss I'll Do Anything for Love Herself. First claims she heard Carl Fontenot admitting everything about the Denise Haraway kidnapping and murder. After she testified, she was given a light sentence on fraudulent check charges, even though she had two prior felonies. Warden Fontenot went to death row and she fled the county. I do want to say something about that. So they did an interview uh, in the Netflix, The Innocent Man. They did an interview with her little man friend, the the one that she got off. He was like going to get 40 years and she eventually married him and all this stuff. So eventually her husband. Anyway, they did an interview with him and he confessed that she fled the county because the police, the Ada police told her to flee the county. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You're probably not going to like this, but there's a statement from Chris Ross, who was the assistant district attorney at the time about Terry Holland. He says, and I quote, she had a sweet C spot going on to clarify that if they needed a confession, she was the one to go to because she had a C spot or a way with confessions. So they knew that they could get whatever they wanted to out of Terry. Wait, does that mean he, like, touched her somewhere? Uh, yeah. See, here's the thing. Later, Terry claimed that she had been abused by jailers and officers. Oh, yeah. And all kinds of of people and that they would videotape it. And she was afraid that those videos would get out. Supposedly, Bill Peterson kept those videos in his office. I don't know if that's true or not. Obviously, Terry isn't here to, like, say anything on that. Bill Peterson won't fucking say anything to anybody on anything. So, either way, whether she was coerced into these all of these confessions or not... I mean, she claims to have had a lot of crap on her that they basically blackmailed her into these confessions. So when the police found her and brought her back, she was facing more charges and fines. And suddenly she had some astounding news for the investigators. Oh, yeah. She also heard Ron Williamson make a full confession. So here we are. Two dream confessions and the same woman hearing both of these men confess. What are the odds? You know, they asked um, they asked Bill Peterson, uh, did you see that 2020 interview with Bill Peterson? Yeah. They asked him uh, if if it ever occurred to him when he was prosecuting these cases that the same snitch was used in both of these cases. And he was like, uh, yeah, that, that never worried me. She was like, so the fact that they it was the same snitch in both cases never like threw in a red flag to you and he was like nope nope i never worried about it why was she asking him that why the fuck would he worry about it he's the one that called the witnesses well i guess because terry had implemented him in the blackmail because he was the keeper of the videotapes or whatever Ugh. moving on Ron was sick of all the back and forth and being harassed. He was so sick of it that he didn't even want to be present for the preliminary trial. He basically just gave up. They wouldn't listen to him. He repeated over and over that he didn't want to be there. He had absolutely nothing to do with it. At one point, he looked right at Gary Rogers and he said, Gary, you scare me. 
He's like, mm. you can charge me with this after harassing me for four and a half years. Go ahead. I am clearly not in control or in charge here. Y'all are going to do whatever you want to do, no matter what I say. Yeah. And he'd already figured it out. Why sit there and waste your time hearing all these lies about yourself? You know, because all you're going to want to do is yell. Yeah. Yeah. And be like, no, I'm going to correct you there because you're fucking wrong. It's about me. How can you say anything about me when you weren't there? You don't know jack shit. And at the trial, they they did produce so-called evidence. They had other than these these snitch confessions or whatever. They apparently had two pubic hairs and two head hairs on both Ron and Dennis Fritz, which we both know how that goes with the hair comparisons. So, <laughs> yeah, those are the ones I brought up earlier that they'd taken from them after they in their first questioning and all that. And of course, Blech. they're like happy to oblige. I didn't mm-hmm. do anything. Yeah. He waves the, by doing this, by saying he doesn't want to be there, it waves his right to confront his witnesses. And he had an attorney named Barney Ward, precious, precious man, who he thought Gore should have been under all this scrutiny. He never fucking understood why, you know, like, why are you not looking at him? Yeah. It's like the only smart guy in the whole entire freaking. Anyway. So he called 10 witnesses to the stand, all jailers or formal former trustees and not a single one recalled hearing anything remotely close to what Terry Holland claimed to have heard. I would like to also mention that Mr. Ward was blind so the evidence he had to have described to him by his assistant Linda and it never made sense to him how this crime scene was all over the apartment yet nobody could find a single print that belonged to either of these men. Wait, who who was blind? Barney Ward. Really? Yeah. So he, you're telling me he figured it out and he was blind and we couldn't figure it out. <laughs> okay. No, that's uh-huh. fine. Mm-hmm. Go on. <laughs> so I guarantee you, if they could have planted that evidence, they'd have done it in a fucking heartbeat. Like mm. if they could have Stephen Avery their way into this, like, Jeez. like, oh God. Anyways, I'm surprised they didn't just say they found their fingerprints everywhere, but didn't record the info. You know, like, uh, actually, oh, we yeah. didn't write it down. I'm so yeah. fucking surprised they didn't do that. So Ron was awarded disability by a Judge O'Brien. His sister, Annette, applied for the benefits on his behalf, like from Social Security. Yeah. He was classified as having atypical bipolar disorder, probably borderline paranoid and antisocial without medications he was belligerent abusive physically violent has Mm. delusions and a thought disorder so he could see ron's problems yet judges miller and jones still thought he was fit to stand trial those are the judges he'd later him and dennis would face let's see a 22 year old named james harjo who is the delegated snitch for dennis fritz they shared a cell okay of course, he made up a bunch of bullshit, including but not limited to Fritz saying he and Ron took beer over to Debbie's house, murdered her, and wiped away all their fingerprints what? and left. So the entire house is a wreck. There are multiple messages, including on her body, but they wiped away all their fingerprints. What? <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard. Hers are, hers are everywhere. So they specifically knew what they had touched and they only wiped no. away theirs. Is that what you're fucking saying? No. No. Jesus. Later, 
Later, this man, at 22, you're technically a man, I guess, he admitted he didn't know the meaning of the word perjury. Mm. Looking at you, Jerry. One more time. What? (laughs) Come on. So the experts in blood, saliva, sweat, DNA, etc., and the hair follicle comparisons were both majorly proven to be an overreach. But the facts left the simpleton jury behind because they had no clue what any of these words mean. Yeah. If I say the word non-secretor right now, how many of you know what I'm talking about off the top of your head? Probably not a lot. <laughs> you, can, you can raise your hand on our Facebook page. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're sitting there as a jury, just an average citizen Joe Schmo. Well... And it's their freaking responsibility to explain that stuff to the jury. And I think that they wanted it to work in their favor, the prosecution at least, that they didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, they're jargon, 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 jargon. Yeah. I'm not saying dumb it down, but layman's terms, for fuck's sake. Explain it. Someone's life is on the line. The forensic field, DNA, it's all you. uh, Big big words lots of acronyms lots of stuff that you just don't understand i mean if you have to go heavily to school for it it's probably not just shit people know off the top of their heads yeah no i have something in here about the non-secretor thing um because i believe that the expert who got on the trial to like verify this who it matched to or whatever actually didn't say it correctly i think he missed spoke at one point i know at one point that she basically made herself look like an idiot whenever she was cross-examined only only like 20 percent of the population are non-secretors and secretor means like your your sweat your saliva is going to leave behind dna evidence not everyone leaves dna behind with that so that leaves 80 percent of the population that does not leave dna behind right 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 The analyst who tested semen evidence from the crime scene testified that he did not detect blood group substances, okay, meaning the result was consistent with the non-secretor, what you just said. But however, Fritz, Williamson, and the victim were all non-secretors. Then the analyst testified incorrectly that this result meant that the perpetrator was also a non-secretor instead of a secretor. And that wasn't true. The perpetrator was a secretor. So even the freaking expert on the freaking stand got it wrong. Because he was told what to say. <laughs> and then he said that, uh, oh, well, I get, it probably doesn't matter anyway, because um, Debbie's blood was probably masking, quote unquote, masking the perpetrator's blood. So under circumstances, the, the failure to inform the jury that 100% of the male pop- population could be included in that secreting thing there it was like they never said that found nasty yeah i know just knowing what was found (laughs) in what they used anyway so all that was like highly misleading and the jury probably didn't understand a damn word of it exactly so at this point i'm sure you can tell where i'm going with this the prosecution is grabbing at straws and the defense is saying yeah but you're stupid and here's why i cannot believe anybody fell for this circus like but after many witnesses and plenty of back and forths dennis fritz was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison bill peterson pointed at him and said that he and ron deserved to die for what they did to debbie i remember that i remember him doing which that. again he said he did not yeah oh yeah it makes you want to throw up like there's so much he's just spitting malice like okay 
even if let's just say this were literally any other trial where we know for sure that the guy did it even if that's true that is so unprofessional of a district attorney like i mean it's not your thing to judge you're not jury you're there to do one job just leave it at that anyway so we're gonna go on to ron's trial when Terry Holland testified against Ron Williamson. She said she heard him telling people in the jail that he'd stuck a Coke bottle up her ass and her panties down her throat. Mm -hmm. That was a direct quote, by the way. Yeah. The evidence they fed her was botched a little bit, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Raven said earlier what kind of bottle it was and what was in her mouth. It was not Coke and panties. Yeah. It was ketchup and a washcloth. Yeah. Sounds like a really interesting strip club name. Yeah. <laughs> Coke and panties. <laughs> Coke and panties. Ron, Ron was there for this, and he loudly argued with her. They bantered back and forth, called her a liar. Oh, yeah. The prosecution was leading her into her fucking answers. And Barney was objecting the way that the prosecutor was feeding Holland the answers. Was it like leading? Leading the witness. Okay. So Peterson was butting his big ass into the conflict even though he wasn't he didn't have a dog in the fight Mm -hmm. and the court was trying to calmly settle everyone down they wound up having to take a break yeah they then called another another fucking informant cindy mcintosh to the stand okay another check fraud extraordinaire she couldn't even remember what story she was supposed to tell and drew a blank she basically just fucking dismissed like or perhaps she actually had a conscience lying dormant in there somewhere that woke up and was like hey let's not put a guy on death row and i don't know shit about him if i'm on the jury and nobody outside of a jail cell has any information linking these two men to this woman i will drag this out until kingdom come there's just no way you know what i mean it's like don't you start to just kind of tilt your head and squint your eyes a little bit at that thought you would think every one of these people is in a jumpsuit yeah you would think why is that yeah shit so since these are two different men on two different trials with two different records they went through the same dog and pony show as the fritz trial if you're ever called to jury duty please be aware that having a history of duis and pis and check forgery doesn't make you a murderer being a murderer doesn't make you a thief selling drugs doesn't make you a rapist you know don't bunch this shit all together like oh he did three marijuanas back in 1977 (laughs) he's definitely a rapist and a murderer yeah that is not how this works our justice system is not based on guilty until proven innocent it is the other way around and if Bill Peterson and the media could have kept their yap shut, yeah. that would have been a nice start. Because nobody goes to the jail and gets a statement from the person in question. Maybe we should start that. Yeah. Two-sided journalism. Mm-hmm. So don't let any juror, like, say we do that. We won't let any juror walk into the courtroom with any kind of pre-programmed bias from the people who are more easily accessible. Right. Let's, like, let's go in there and talk to them. Mm-hmm. What say you? What say you? <laughs> let's do it. What say you? Right? Let's do it. Let's do it. Do you have anything to say on that? I think you just literally said all the things. So <laughs> there was another witness in his in that testified in his case. Mm-hmm. So he there were several and I've skipped a bunch. So if there's anything of importance to yeah. you. Well, like, I feel like yeah. this one is kind of uh, this witness's name was Andrea Hardcastle. She mm-hmm. was really good friends with Dennis Smith's daughter. And she had testified that Ron Williamson 
had threatened her before, had raped her and threatened to kill her. So I'm assuming that the prosecution just really needed to set up the fact that this guy was violent and could kill. Yeah, and they saved her for last, of course. We don't know if her testimony is true or it's not because she never reported it. She never, like, she never went to the police after any of this happened and went, hey, this is what happened. Please, you know, none of that ever happened. The only time that they ever heard anything about it was when she was on the stand. I'm not saying that she made it up. I will not say that. However, I think that she was used in this case to the benefit of the prosecution. I'm just going to leave that there. So maybe she just almost like a Me Too movement came forward and was like, oh, I know something bad about him. It's very possible. Yeah. Thinking how the hell did they even track her down? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. If she didn't want to go to them and say anything, then what on earth would make her want to go to the trial and sit in that room with him? And I don't know. It seems intense. I feel like she told Dennis Smith's daughter and he was the lead investigator on the case. And the daughter eventually told Dennis Smith and Dennis Smith was like, oh, yeah, we could definitely use that for trial. I mean, and they're coaxing everyone else to get on the stand anyway. So why wouldn't they? I know, but they're just like bribing everyone else. It's just like, oh, we'll lessen your sentence if you say blah blah but we don't know like what she uh, i mean we don't know if they threatened her some way we don't know she's friends with dennis smith's daughter dennis smith's daughter was friends with debbie Mm -hmm. she probably either knew debbie or she's doing a solid for dennis smith's daughter you know i don't know we we just don't know that's the taste that they left in the jury's mouth and the jury took less than two hours to come back with the death penalty Mm. And I, I said because Peterson had a woman testify who Moran had assaulted in 1981. He was wearing a horse head ring when he did that, even though she didn't press charges. So we have no idea what the marks looked like that were left from the ring. And apparently Peterson decided during her testimony that the same marks were left on Debbie, even though there was no such evidence. But let's uh, be honest, it wasn't necessary. Yeah, no. Judge Jones called a hearing the following day about the state's Brady violation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because the cops and Peterson had deliberately withheld the videotape of Ron's polygraph interrogation. Mm -hmm. He ruled that the suppression of the tape by the authorities wasn't a Brady violation after all because the tape wasn't hidden per se. It was just handed over after the fucking trial. That's so stupid. How is that not a Brady violation? Come on. How? Why even turn it in? What was even the point at that point? You knew what you were doing and you're shitty and shoddy. It gets worse. So Ron Williams was sent to F Cell House. And if you've lived in Oklahoma very long, you likely know that name. It's Death Row at Big Mac. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're not from Oklahoma or you've never lived in Oklahoma, Big Mac is the state prison in McAllister. Mm -hmm. They have a... Prison rodeo and death row inmates. So that place in Lexington, do not pick up hitchhikers anywhere around there. Bad people. Let's see. He didn't, he didn't know it at first, but two other casualties of the Pontotoc County judicial system were also there when he arrived. Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were both there. They had been there almost three years waiting for their appeals to go through the courts. Tommy, when Ron got there, Tommy sent Ron a note. I can't, what's the name? What's the little go-to guy? Oh, dude, I don't remember. There's a name There's a name for it. When they send their kites, their little notes. It's a kite, but it's a guy. God, I forget what someone, they're called. 
someone out there listening is just screaming it at us right now. And I can't think, you know what I mean? Like, I can't think of what the name is. Anyway, that guy, the note passer on her, uh, Tommy sent Ron a note and just said hi and wished him well. Basically, like, welcome to Death Row. You know, I'm sorry. Tommy's so fucking precious. Is he not the most precious? Oh, God. And he was handsome, too. All those videos of him when he was younger and the pictures, he's a strapping young lad. Ron was, too, honestly. Ron had always believed Tommy and Carl were innocent and had thought of them often during this ordeal. Ron Williamson was set to be executed on July 18, 1988, at 12.02 a.m. at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. His sister got the letter about two months after he arrived at the prison, but appeals are automatic in capital cases. So that's that proce- that slow process was underway. Yeah. He got a lawyer, Adam Norman, named Mark Barrett, who believed his client was innocent. Um, like he would sit down and talk with him. You know, they would talk about religion. They would, t- it's like he really invested his time in getting to know who Ron Williamson was. Yeah. And I feel like that's that bless that man. Mm-hmm. Um, many years, many appeals. I won't bore you with all the dates. It's the same sad song and dance over and over, you know, like yeah. appeal this, no to that appeal, this no to that appeal, maybe nah, you know, just left and right. That's all. That's all that happened. I do want to throw in the fact that at one point, uh, Ron Williamson had a psychologist go in and meet with him. And I only wanted to throw this in cause it's so similar to the last case that we did. So the psychologist went in and talked to him and the psychologist ended up saying, Oh, well, Ron had have all has, has these thoughts and he had dreams and all this stuff. And so he literally dismissed all of that as an alter ego of Williamson. Now, if you'll remember the closing statements of Bill Peterson in the last case were that Tommy Ward actually did all this. It was his alter ego. Frickin' uh, Tidsdale, or Tidsworth, was his alter ego doing all this at the time. I just think there's so much things that correlate to these freaking cases to each other. It's just insane. On the mental side of things, like mental health, you also have to wonder what was going on at that time. Like, I think they were probably just fresh out of Charles Manson and things like that. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's just, they were they were probably just starting to study and accept psychosis and getting the difference between a sociopath mm-hmm. and a psychopath oh, and yeah. a, you know, bipolar. And now we have a different name for when, it, what is it? SSID? SI, oh God, what's it called? I can't remember. It's not called multiple personalities anymore. Yeah, it's called uh, something dissociative identity disorder or something like that. Anyways, they're, they're coming up with names for all this, but... So it's like now I just got a letter from my company. It is a global company and they're like, we recognize mental health and we recognize that it's important. And we want you to know that your insurance carrier is now working with this company and, you know, they're going to be covering your mental health. And I'm like, that is absolutely beautiful to me. That is awesome because not a lot of companies do that. No, and in I mean, just just in our mother's lifetimes, we have gone from people being locked away in an insi- insane asylum and getting shock therapy for yeah. being for being um, depressed or yeah. having anxiety to now where your insurance, your company is like, hey, mental health, like enough prominent people have committed suicide where it's just like, okay, this is obviously 
it literally is an illness there yeah. is a problem because all these people have everything in the world you could possibly want you know all the money all the glamour all the whatever like they want for nothing absolutely maybe that was a thing back then and i just don't know time period what they what the social studies were as far as your mental capacity goes trudging along january 26th and 27th 1999 mm-hmm. at laboratory corporation of america we in the industry call it LabCorp. it's easier to just call it LabCorp. <laughs> the semen samples from the crime scene the torn panties the bed sheets and the vaginal swabs were tested against the dna profiles of ron williamson and dennis fritz oh i love it a dna expert had been hired by Ron and Dennis's attorneys. Two days later, Judge Landreth delivered the news that the DNA test excluded Ron and Dennis. Wonderful. Mark Barrett filed a motion to dismiss the charges. Bill Peterson wanted further testing on the hair. He was convinced the newer (laughs) technology of DNA samples from the hair follicles would prove they were the murderers. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Idiot. (laughs) Say something nice. Peterson agreed to their dismissal if the hair came back to not be a match. Okay. So it kind of makes you wonder if this man didn't lie his way into his own truth. So on February 10th, Mark Barrett and a Sarah something something, I'm assuming it was like a helper, an associate, whatever. Yeah. They drove to Lexington, also no, no hitchhiker zone, drove to <laughs> Lexington to the prison to see Glenn Gore. Remember, he's serving out a 40-year sentence because he's a fucking psychopath. Yeah. He told Barrett he'd been expecting a visit. You know, Barrett's like, what? Why? He said Peterson had threatened him if he didn't help nail Ron and Dennis. Gore was asked for a saliva saliva sample by the lawyers. And he said, it's not necessary. The state already has one. And Barrett asked if Gore's DNA, he asked Gore, he was like, so did, you know, were you around her? Did you have sex with her? Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no, no, no. And he's like, he asked, like, could your DNA be on her? And he said, probably because he danced with her like five times. And Barrett's like, "Uh, dancing won't do it. And he's like, I'm just letting you know. I danced with her and got semen all over. Oh my God. She's pregnant now. (laughs) So come on. He said, I want you to know they have DNA from the semen. And instantly, Gore called time. He's like, I'm done talking. He panicked. He wanted to be taken away. Oh, of course. Barrett told him, if you had sex with her, the semen will match your DNA. And he clammed up. They called OSBI that afternoon and suggested that they find Gore's DNA in the databank and compare it with the semen samples from the crime scene. Yes. Yes. They made the call. They called a friend in the lab and they're like, hey lady, (laughs) that's our friend. Help do this. And she said, okay, I do this. I do this. (laughs) I do this for you. (laughs) I go do this. I have semen over here. I tried this. Okay. So on April 15th, the men were brought into the courthouse in handcuffs for the last time. Dennis Smith and Gary Rogers were somewhere else. Imagine that. They didn't even fucking show up. They did not come to this. Mm. Ron and Dennis got their cuffs taken off for the last time. They sat behind their lawyers. They brought in a witness to state and confirm that none of the evidence collected matching matched Ron or Dennis. Beautiful. 
which they knew the whole damn time. And by the way, they used five different labs for this. It wasn't just LabCorp. Well, good. Confirm it five times. Exactly. They were <laughs> thorough because because of the issues and the many different DNA examples, da 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 da, da yeah. and the problem between defense and prosecution. So yeah. the testing revealed two of the hairs had been left behind by... Dun, 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 Glenn Gore. Glenn Gore! <laughs> also, the source of the semen, tell him, Glenn Gore. Glenn Gore! <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> Peterson claims the evidence they had at the time pointing to Ron and Dennis was overwhelming, though he didn't go into great detail because... Because it wasn't overwhelming. How, how, how overwhelming was it really? No. no. Uh, so much standing evidence. Overwhelming. Not a fingerprint, not DNA. This hair follicle kind of looks like a hair follicle. Well, scientifically, uh, how can I say this without... Okay. Um, I'm a fan of forensics. Mm-hmm. And the hair follicles can basically just separate groups, like ethnic groups of people. Mm -hmm. It's not DNA. It's not fucking on point. It's it's basically like this person's Caucasian and this person is half Caucasian. That that sort of thing. Not only that, but sometimes they couldn't even tell the difference between a human hair and a dog hair. Oh, we've we've been. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah. There was no apology, no admission of errors. I think everyone saw that coming. They spent, what, 12 years of their lives in prison. They were nearly executed. Not even an apology. Judge Landreth asked the men to stand. I love Judge Landreth. This is what he said. He said, and I quote, what you see today and what's occurred over the last several months was what I truly believe is a non-adversarial search for what the truth really is in this case. We use today's science and today's technology to right a wrong, and we cannot replace the 12 years that the defendants have been incarcerated, nor can we forget Debbie Carter. All we can do is go forward from today, but what this day really is, is a day of freedom. Oh, I love him. Mic drop. They released them like right then and there, didn't they? Ron bolted outside for a cigarette (laughs) and he came back and the men joined their families happily and they fucking left. And for Debbie's family, they were basically back at square one. I put another judge's note in there that was a district court judge, Mm -hmm. Frank C. And it was during his decision to grant a new trial. And he said, God help us if ever in this great country... We turn our heads while those who have not had fair trials are executed. That almost happened in this case. Mm. You know, did we mention that Gore had gone to school with Debbie for like all 12 years? Uh, Yeah, I said that whenever I was talking about his statement, but not necessarily how long. Just yeah, they like went way back. Oh, no. Oh, you're going to love this. Okay. When Gore found out that he was a suspect, so he was he was working in a He was in prison. (laughs) He was working in the prison's work release program. He just was like, oh, crap. And like straight up stole a police officer's vehicle and escaped. So he hid. (laughs) When he gets caught, he's just, I panicked. (laughs) Um, And so what's crazy is that he was the last person seen with Carter, right? And despite being interviewed by the police that night after her death, 
They never bothered to take his fingerprints, his saliva, his hair samples, none of that. And when this new trial came up, of course, they usually take most of those things when they book you. So he had right. he had some of those things already like on file. So they kind of already knew. They were like, we know who we're looking for. Now, previously, Debbie and her one of her friends had already tried to file a report on Glengore. Debbie's windshield wipers had been stolen. And she and her friend, like, she had her friend drive her to Glengore's house to confront him about it. Which was in Fitztown. She wasn't afraid of confrontation. I fully believe she would have left marks on him during all that mayhem. So I wonder how long after the murder anyone saw him. Like, did he went down there the next day? Like, did... Mm. I don't know. Surely, surely you notice if someone that you suspect of doing something like this and making this much of a mess, once again, we're going to bring up, she left marks on him. Yeah. And somebody's ignoring it. I'm not sure how much earlier the windshield wipers event took place because at some point between that event and this event, she became afraid of him. You know, the research that I looked up said that a year prior to to her murder she got into an argument with him at Conowal Lake and like a lot of people witnessed them like going at it and she eventually left with some friends and then the year a year before that incident is when the windshield wiper incident occurred so yeah like two years for sure she had been having confrontations with this guy yes and so somewhere in there she got afraid of him because there's a big difference between a woman who drives all the way to a town 10 minutes away to confront a man about freaking windshield wipers and yeah. then a woman who calls her friends or wants her friends to come over and stay the night with her because she doesn't feel safe. He has done something she, and once again we'll get to this in a little bit he was probably more dangerous than anybody knew she knew i'm sure you know apparently obviously she knew basically they went to the police it was an informal complaint rather than a formal report i mean police are kind of bound by the law in terms of what is a problem and what isn't but i think maybe after all these years and all these wrong convictions pause for laughter they understand the importance of a paper trail also, wouldn't you think that the first thing they would do is look up their records and see if she had ever made a complaint on anybody before? If they didn't fucking file it, then what good did that do? But I mean, even if you make a statement, it it's still in their records. It was pretty much like <laughs> she just went there to bitch and they were her counselor. They just listened to her and that's all there was. They didn't actually take any statements. Uh -uh. That's and, okay. That right there bothers me. Uh huh. So because, much about this is bothersome. Ugh. It's like they don't even care. When you get into his rap sheet of the shit that he did prior to this and the shit that he did after this, it's like, please explain to me. Oh, I have so much to say. Okay, okay. We have to move yeah. on. I digress. When the new trial for Gore began, the DNA was finally proven to be a match. The jury found him guilty, like instantaneously he was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to death that he was sentenced he was basically teetered on the death penalty the uh the jury couldn't decide if they wanted to give him the, the death penalty or not so landreth was just kind of like well i'll give him life without parole so along with that i wanted to bring up when dennis fritz and and ron williamson were exonerated because of the DNA evidence that pointed directly to Glenn Gore. 
later, the reason why Glenn Gore got two trials, I know you probably heard us mention that he had two trials, and I wanted to explain that real quick. If you want to, you can look in Gore versus State. I'm going to read you just a little bit from that and talk about it for just a second. His first trial, they said, we have DNA evidence of you. And that's the reason why Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were exonerated. Now, because of that, you cannot use in your defense anything that implicates Ron Williamson, Dennis Fritz, or Ricky Simmons. Reason being was because they have already been exonerated of it. Therefore, a courthouse found that they had nothing to do with it. Therefore, he could not use their names in his trial. Later, the reason why he got a second trial was because his defense attorney, when he appealed, claimed that because he wasn't able to use Ron Williamson or Dennis Fritz in that trial, it says in Gore versus State, he asserts the ex- exclusion of this evidence denied him due process and the right to put on a defense. So they gave him a second trial. In the second trial, they brought up the fact that the evidence must tend to connect such other person with the commission of the crime charged. What they're basically saying is, we need hard evidence that they committed this crime. Again, it says, any testimony tending to show that some other person committed the crime is admissible. Counsel state the rule broader than that, though, and insist that testimony may be introduced tending to show that another person may have committed the crime, and the rule is so stated by some courts. But we think this is not generally or usually held that facts are competent, which have no further effect than to cast a bare suspicion upon another. It is generally conceded that a defendant in a criminal case may, for the purpose of establishing his own innocence, prove such fact as tend to show that another is the guilty party, where the identity of the one committing the crime is a material point in issue. One of the prominent rules of evidence is that it must tend to prove the issue. It's not necessary that every fact should bear directly upon the issue, but it becomes admissible if it tends to prove the issue or constitute a link in a chain of proof. The rule excludes all evidence of collateral facts, which are incapable of affording any reasonable presumption or interference as to the principal fact or matter in dispute and the tendency of which is to divert the mind from the point in issue and to excite prejudice or mislead or confuse the jury. So that is straight from Gore versus State. And what basically what that means is you can't just say someone else did it. They're saying you can't just say that. You have to have actual evidence that goes with it. You have to say, well, Joe Blow down the street probably did it because his hair was found at the scene. His fingerprints were found at the scene. His blood was found at the scene. So the reason why Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were able to get exonerated was because they implicated Glenn Gore, but also had evidence to prove that he was at the scene that night. On the other hand, after their exoneration and Glenn Gore went to trial, he could not use Dennis Fritz and Ron Williamson. That Dennis Fritz and Ron Williamson have already been proven not to have been at the crime. And there were no other links other than so-and-so could have possibly seen him there. All of that is circumstantial. They wanted something that proved that there was another person that had committed this crime and 
Glenn Gore just had none of that proof. But here's here's the, the fucked up part. Glenn says that the reason why he believes that they never pointed the finger at him was because he knew a lot of the police officers in Ada. He had also admitted to dealing drugs to them and for them. Like, as in, these police officers would confiscate drugs from other felons and then basically give them to Gore, and he would deal them out instead of, like, being put into evidence and shit. One of these officers, who was a police captain, titles included, police captain, public safety manager, and emergency management director, Mr. Jeff Crosby. Oh, let me tell him. Oh, it's not time. I'll wait. He said, like, this is why they never looked at me. Basically, uh, I was one of their, like, main men or whatever. Like, I was dealing drugs for them. I was doing all these things for them. And they were afraid, he said, they were afraid that if he had been fingered for Debbie Carter's murder, then it would have he would have outed these police officers, Crosby being one of them. Jeff Crosby was part of a lot of these cases. More than more than two men have been exonerated. And one this last year coming up an exoneration case mm-hmm. from DNA evidence mm-hmm. was a rape case. Mm-hmm. And the man had spent what 33, 32, 33 years in prison. Harry Lott. He had spent a decent amount of time in jail for a rape. I really want to say like 30 for a rape. So Perry Lott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1988, he served 30 years before being cleared by DNA in July 2018. Okay. So from what I understand, Jeff Crosby was set to testify on Monday, July the... July 9th, 2018, Perry Lott was exonerated by DNA. July 7th, a hearing was scheduled for that Monday in which... Jeff Crosby was supposed to testify. So not like two, three days. Yeah. Jeff Crosby takes himself out of this world the weekend before. Like completely out, the good old-fashioned way, with his service weapon. Suicided himself. This also was on the verge of the Innocent Man documentary coming out. Yep, it was set to come out in December 2018, actually. So like five months later. Yes, they they had made the announcement. Mm -hmm. Because I remember it felt like we were waiting for fucking ever. Everybody was just like on the edge of their seats like, oh my God, let's watch it. Mm -hmm. The people that I know that worked closely with him say that he had been having some issues. He was paranoid. He thought the FBI was coming. If any of you are listening to this, and I'm not saying the right thing, I'm terribly sorry. To the person whom I love very much who was close to him, I'm terribly sorry. He did some awful shit. Facts are facts. Facts are facts. I'm very sorry, but good God. And the thing the thing that made me almost the most irate about all of it is that this man will never be able to right any of his wrongs. Mm-hmm. He will. There are so many people who will not get any closure because he is taking these secrets to the grave. Yep. And for these two men that got out on exoneration, DNA exoneration, 
they're pretty much victims and their families are victims. Mm -hmm. And then the victim's family has to start at square one and get all this all over again. And there's, there's so much spite and malice and anger and, and things that when it comes to a murder that brutal, I cannot imagine the hate that would fester inside me just thinking about it and then have to sit there in the room with these two men that you think did this to the person that you love. It would just be this rotting, sinking, disgusting feeling Mm -hmm. all the time. And it's not the best for you. It is not good for you to feel that way. And so the fact that they did all this and pinned it on the wrong people and then you're left going, well, who the fuck did do it then? You know? Or knowing who the fuck did do it and and never disclosing that information. I mean, um, I, I have a quote here from Doug Parr, who is local counsel for Perry Lott. And Perry Lott, when he was exonerated, apparently he was not the only one who they are looking at to be exonerated that Jeff Crosby and Bill Peterson, all these people were involved with. He says, we discovered there was another unresolved rape case that occurred after Mr. Lott's case, where all the circumstances of that case were extremely close to Mr. Lott's case. And some of the police officers who were involved in the case, like Mr. Jeff Crosby. We have him two days before he's supposed to go on the stand and testify in one of these cases, and he just takes himself out of of the scenario completely. I mean, sometimes I feel like maybe that is a profession of guilt in itself. I don't know. It just looks real bad. Oh, and also a little bit about Bill Peterson. I don't know if you knew this. But Bill Peterson's grandfather, whose name was P.A. Norris, had been one of the wealthiest oh, men. We all know. <laughs> well, if you're if you're from Ada, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. I got it. Let's talk about Norris Field for a second. Fuck around. Anyway, exactly. So P.A. Norris, he had been one of the wealthiest men in the entire region. He owned the first national bank on Main Street. He donated the land for the football stadium at the college, which now bears his name, Norris Field. Some of his wealth had been passed along to his grandson, William Norris Peterson. So I don't know if you know this either, but he filed a civil suit against John Grisham in like 2006, seven, but it was dismissed in 2008 because he, yeah. he was trying to hold him liable for saying all these things about him. But here's the deal, guy. Facts are facts. I'm sorry, but I mean, like like you just said, I'm sorry for anybody who knew, who knows these people, knew these people, but facts are facts. You can't pretend like it didn't happen. It's a fact. So I know. Bill had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of pull. And sometimes people like that think they can get away with anything. Oh, exactly. He had so much. I'm never wrong. Just fucking ask me. Blah, 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 blah. Like, oh, yeah. As if he could just dream, dream his way to reality. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I made this up. And so it's this way. And that's how it is. Yep. Absolutely. So if you still wonder listeners out there who maybe don't know Ada too much. Um, If you wonder how close-knit this town is, how everybody knows everybody, uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from Reddit from a user named Pack of Weenies. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this this guy says, this case has haunted me since it happened in 1984. I was 10 years old. Mrs. Haraway, as we called her at Hayes, was one of the nicest and most soft-spoken people you could ever meet. All of the students oh loved God. her. She, was, she always graded papers at a table just off the library, and it was hard to not see her there anymore. We also knew Tommy, Carl, and Odell Titsworth. They used to come over to drink beer with my dad, and Odell even did my dad's bulldog tattoo one of those nights. I even grew up, redacted, about three doors down from where Debbie Carter was murdered. My friend also lived where Dennis Fritz was living at the time. It was just around the corner from us. Seeing the innocent man brought back a lot of memories for us. Ada is one of those smaller towns that everyone knows you. I just never realized how much I was entwined in this tragedy until I saw the docuseries. How crazy is that? Mm. I'm just going to briefly mention because I don't really too much claim my bio dad. But in John, in, yeah, in John Grisham's book... Um, hit my bio dad's name appears in John Grisham's book. He's got like two little paragraphs of his own. So my bio dad is in John Grisham's book. That's how closely everyone is so related in freaking Ada. It's insane. Oh, For- I see. I see right now. I- yep. Oh, shit. He knew Gary Allen? Yep. Like the singer? <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but the, but my point is for bringing this one up is that in this small town, anybody can say anything at any time, and everybody wants their fifteen minutes of fame. So, dude, not even yeah, so stupid. We want to end this episode. We have thrown so much information at you. I have a letter here. It's a letter to the editor in theadanews.com. It was from John Grisham his, himself to the editor and the stamp date on it is October 30th 2008 so I'm just going to read that real quick because I feel like he has some pretty good points please forgive an outsider for meddling in your politics I wouldn't normally think of doing so however I know a lot of the history behind a certain job that's on the November ballot so he was talking about uh, the DA coming up for re-election I urge the good folks in the 22nd Judicial District to remember these six innocent men, all from Ada. Ron Williamson, convicted of murder in Ada, 1987, and sentenced to death, exonerated by DNA in 99. An innocent man. Dennis Fritz, convicted of murder in Ada in 1987 and sentenced to life, exonerated by DNA in 1999. An innocent man. Calvin Lee Scott, convicted of murder in 1983 and served 20 years before being exonerated by DNA in 2003. This and and Calvin Lee Scott was the man that was put away by the dog hair, by the way. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Perry Lott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1988, served 30 years before being cleared by DNA in July 2018, an innocent man. Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot, convicted of rape and murder in Ada in 1985, 
still serving time. Well, as of now, Carl Fontenot just got out, but both innocent men. Yeah. These six men were wrongfully convicted before the availability of DNA testing. Their alleged crimes were investigated by the same authorities, the same prosecutors, prosecuted by the same district attorney's office. Their fraudulent convictions were obtained by the use of lying jailhouse snitches, junk science, coerced confessions, and eyewitness identifications that were manipulated. Ron Williamson, Dennis Fritz, and Calvin Lee Scott were fully exonerated and received compensation, which uh, Ron and Dennis both got $500,000, just FYI. They sued the city of Ada, yeah. Right. The taxpayers of Ada paid for some of those damages. Perry Lott served 30 years and was released last July in the face of overwhelming DNA evidence. However... The current district attorney, Paul Smith, refused to acknowledge this. Perry was forced to enter a bogus guilty plea just to get out of prison. He will not be compensated for Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. Fontenot just got out, but for Ward, the clock is still ticking after 33 years. In the case, the crime scene investigations were bungled so badly that the real killers may never be found. Six innocent men convicted in only five years of the i mean just alone that's insane five years with a population of also it's still insane that you want to accuse somebody of rape when all you found no evidence of rape whatsoever where did rape come from why anyways anyways that's still what the fuck is that he says ada ranks is one of the worst places in the country for wrongful convictions per capita that's crazy it's time to stop convicting innocent people The 22nd has not had a district attorney election for 28 years. It's time to start cleaning up the mess by bringing some integrity to the office. Sincerely, John Grisham, Oxford, Mississippi, author of The Innocent Man. Hooray. Let it be noted that those people, it was a long time ago. You know, this this is different. Times are different. Yes. You know, this, it's, it's been a minute. So... Well, I just remember when he was there because I lived in Dallas at the time and I came up and they were like, I went, we went out somewhere to eat and they were like, you just missed John Grisham. And I was like, oh shit, the guy whose books are all in my mom's house. Like my mom's a huge fan. And I was like, what is he doing in Ada? And that's when mom was like, remember the book from a long time ago, blah, blah, blah. Dreams of Ada. And I was like, yeah. 2006. Yeah, it was 2006. Yeah, she was like, he's doing that. And I was like... Well, yeah, and and another thing, like, we have to remember... So, Bill Peterson is not the DA anymore. However, he was the DA for 28 years. And he had a hand in some of the cases that we have even already talked about. He had a hand in Rachel Woodall. He had a hand in uh, Daniel Furr. So, I mean... You're hearing his name because all of the cases that we talked to you about that are so fucked up, <laughs> he seems to have had a hand in. <laughs> Bill Peterson. <laughs> and like he went on, well, like I said earlier, he went on 2020. That was literally the last interview he ever did. He refused to do any more interviews ever after that. So <laughs> he probably got a whole lot of backlash. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there you go. So um, Dennis Smith died who was the lead investigator. He was actually a lead investigator on, on a few cases that we've talked about. Um, what, 2006? I think. Um, June 30th, 2006. Mm. Sweet Barney Ward died in the summer of 2005. Aww. 
John Grisham never had the chance to interview him. We wanted to talk to you about the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project, it was a huge part in, well, even in Carl Fontenot's case. And all of those people that we mentioned in that letter to the editor, all of them have been taken under the wing of the Innocence Project. So what they they do is, okay, the Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Peter Nofield and Barry Sheck and in the Netflix documentary you can actually see them kind of being interviewed here and there um, so what they do is they try to exonerate wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing and most of the time they provide funding to these people who either don't have lawyers they'll provide them lawyers or funding to get a lawyer people who need dna testing to try to exonerate themselves they provide the funding to do those dna tests and like they have really helped out i i believe that it was due to the innocence project that carl fontenot eventually got out last year so I say last year like it was so long ago but (laughs) (laughs) we're still in the first week (laughs) so if you would like to help number one if you want to look into the innocence project more you can go to the innocenceproject.org they have a, a way that you can donate you can either donate like one time you can donate monthly um they have you can just like support an exoneree like basically adopt an exoneree <laughs> sort of program. That's so cute. I want Carl. I pick Carl. Actually, I'll wait for Tommy. Or I could do both. Um, so you can go there and you can donate that way. Give your your time or your money. Um, just go on their website and, and dig around a little bit. Try to get involved that way. And we we wanted to read you some fun facts Uh, because we have talked so much about exonerations and DNA evidence. We wanted to give you some fun facts about exonerations in the United States. 1989, the first DNA exoneration took place. 367 DNA exonerees to date. 37 states where exonerations have been won. 14 is the average number of years served. The total number of years served, 5,097.5. 5,000. Average age at the time of wrongful conviction is 26 and a half years old. The average age at exoneration is 42, almost 43. 21 of 367 people served time on death row. 41 of those 367 people pled guilty to crimes they did not commit. 69% of involved eyewitness misidentification. 42% of these cases were across racial misidentification. 32% of these cases involved multiple misidentifications of the same person, Tommy Ward. Mm -hmm. 27 of these cases involved misidentification through the use of a composite sketch, Tommy and Carl. 44% of people involved misapplication of forensic science in their cases. 28% involved false confessions. 49% of the false confessors were 21 years old or younger at the time of arrest. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. 33% of the false confessors were 18 years or younger at the time of arrest. 10% of the false confessors had mental health or mental capacity issues. That was going to be my next question. What was their IQ? There you go. 
17% involved informants. 267 DNA exonerees were compensated. 189 DNA exonerees worked on by the Innocence Project alone. 162 actual assailants identified. Those actual perpetrators went on to be convicted of 152 additional violent crimes, including 82 sexual assaults, 35 murders, and 35 other violent crimes, while the innocent sat behind bars for their earlier offenses. Jeez. Holy shit. 130 DNA exonerees were wrongfully convicted for murders. 40 of them involved eyewitness misidentifications, and 81 of them, which is 62%, involved false confessions as of July 9th, 2018. Oh my god. Yeah. 102 DNA exonerations involved false confessions. The real perp was identified in 76 of these cases. These 38 real perps went on to commit 48 additional crimes for which they were convicted, including 25 murders, 14 rapes, and 9 other violent crimes as of July 24th, 2018. 180 of the DNA exonerees, which is 50%, had the real perpetrators identified in their cases. 137 of the DNA exonerees had the real perpetrators identified through a cold database hit. So, how does DNA make a difference in the criminal justice system? Well, since 1989, there have been tens of thousands of cases where prime suspects were identified and pursued until DNA testing, prior to conviction, proved that they were wrongfully accused. In more than 25% of cases in a National Institute of Justice study, suspects were excluded once DNA testing was conducted during the criminal investigation. The study conducted in 1995 included 10,060 cases where testing was performed by FBI labs. An innocent project review of our closed cases from 2004 to 2015 revealed that 29% of cases were closed because of lost or destroyed evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tommy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Carl. Yeah. We sound like those things on the Muppets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. If you live alone, you should have some sort of defense tactics set in place. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say a weapon. Go to a class. Learn self-defense. Oh, yeah. Learn the signs and signals or what, whatever it is. I mean, in all honesty, it's liberating to know that you could just freaking smoke somebody. Oh, yeah. I, well, I mean, violence isn't the answer, but self-preservation kind of is. I don't know. <sighs> but oh, like yeah. as a as a Debbie, <laughs> even if you're 20, if you're 21, if you're a parent and you have a child who's maybe going off to college, like my mother taught me so much shit before I left because I was going 1600 miles away. Yeah. There was no saving me. If something happened, I had to save me. She taught me there was that trick where you put your, your truck key between your fingers, mm-hmm. between your middle finger and your knuckle finger. Oh, yeah. And so for, like put a house key there. Cause I know most of us don't really, you have the little push button start kind of thing nowadays. But anyways, put a key there. That could just stab somebody. And don't just stab them in the stomach because that's only going to hurt for a second. Like stab them in the eye yeah, or something. You know what I mean? Say, right in the eyeball. Yeah. Go over the eye. Go over the throat. Get ugly about it. Maybe up the nose. Get a lobotomy. I don't fucking know. Just defend <laughs> yourself. 
think about yourself, think about the ones that you love that live alone. And then as a friend, know the signs and signals because her friend Gina knew something was fucking wrong. Something was weird. Three, four, four, four things were weird. Yeah. Four. Maybe even including her walking off the dance floor. Like walking off the dance floor, talking to him, wanting someone to stay the night with her, making two different phone calls and asking if she'll call and wake her up. Yeah. Notice these things. When your friends are doing something abnormal, God knows why she didn't call the police. Just call the fucking police. Yeah. Call the police. And if you're getting railroaded, (laughs) never budge. Never budge. Never say you had a dream. Never say that you thought about it i mean stand Uh stand your ground if you didn't fucking do it no one can no one no one should be able to scare you into saying that you did something you didn't do ron williamson was five days away from being executed that's heavy yeah so okay i'm done with my rant (laughs) well we hope that you have learned a little with us today at least about our crazy ass small town the and the crap that goes on in it we want to we mostly do this because we want you to learn number one we want you to know facts number two we want you to remember the victims and this is the biggest reason why we don't call our episodes like the innocent man or you know whatever because we want you to look at it and know that victim's name they are worth remembering we are now on twitter we can tweet stuff you can find us on twitter and interact with us a little bit if you want to do that well, it's just intuition investigations, true crime on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I thought it was like I, you, I, 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 yeah. You can at us at I, I ink true crime, you can and it's not us. ink like you tatted up. It's like incorporated. Yeah, I N C. Mm-hmm. Catch us there. Bye. Bye. So let's talk about McGirt v. Oklahoma for a second. The case revolved around an appeal by tribal citizen Jim C. McGirt, a Seminole, who argued state courts had no authority to try him for a crime committed on reservation land within the jurisdiction of the Creek Nation. So McGirt, who was 71 at the time, was serving a 500-year prison sentence for molesting a child. On this case, the Supreme Court ruled that a large portion of eastern Oklahoma remained tribal land, saying Congress never explicitly disestablished the 1866 boundaries of the Creek Nation. As such, prosecution of crimes by Native Americans on these lands fall into the jurisdiction of the tribal courts and federal judiciary under the Major Crimes Act rather than Oklahoma's courts. This means that hundreds of state court cases will have to be shifted either to federal or tribal courts. This court ruling has affected this case and many other cases that we have covered so far. It also affected the Sean Bossy case in which you've probably heard of by now. We'll make sure to cover the extensive details in another episode. But long story short, Bossy is charged with first-degree murder for the killings of 25-year-old Katrina Griffin, 8-year-old Christian Griffin, and 6-year-old Chastity Hammer, 
who died when their mobile home was allegedly set ablaze by Bossy. Because of the McGirt ruling, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals voided the conviction of Bossy, who was unlawfully tried and condemned in the Oklahoma State Courts for an offense that occurred on Native American tribal lands. We see this happening in cases all across Oklahoma right now. From one of my most reliable sources, who was a prosecutor, cases like the this one is being vacated rapidly. District Attorney Matt Ballard from District 12 of Oklahoma said he's identified roughly 400 cases within his district that could be affected. And a spokesperson for Tulsa-based acting U.S. Attorney Clint Johnson said the office anticipates its caseload will initially increase by between 500 and 600 cases that are still, for now, on the books in the court state, in, in the state court, sorry. The agency has so far identified 76 cases for federal prosecution, alleging crimes within the Cherokee Nation reservation that involve Native American victims or defendants. My source had told me that most uh, felony cases were being forwarded to the federal courts and most misdemeanors were being taken on by their pertaining nations. And while we pretty much only cover murder here, it's looking like a lot of the cases we've covered so far are waiting to be picked up by the feds. I'll be, from here on out, attaching individual updates to each one of those individual episodes as we learn about them. Because of McGirt, several cases that we've covered were granted post-conviction relief and their sentences were vacated. This was because they were convicted in Oklahoma State Court. Since then, indictments were returned by the federal grand jury and filed in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Oklahoma. This case has been indicted. It will be reheard, retried, or resentenced in federal court. We'll keep you updated as the cases are heard. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?